Welcome to the podcast. We got fun and games. We got everything you need. Pillar Podcast is our name. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast. Had to get that out of my system. I'm your host and Pillar Editor in Chief JD Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co founder and fellow Ed. Do you, um, are you indeed a fellow, my fellow, a fellow Guns and Roses enthusiast? Oh, yes. My appetite for destruction is nearly endless. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, how you doing, man? Um, I'm in quite a lot of pain. I, yeah, um, you were telling me you're, you, you, you slept on your elbow or something? You did? I, no, I, I don't know what I did, but it happened while I was asleep. And basically, the, there's a six inch length of my spinal column between my shoulder blades that just. It, it hurts, JD, if I try and do anything dramatic like sit or stand up straight or look left. Um, and, uh, it's, it's quite painful. I, I don't we know what's are. going on. I mean, I'm, I'm going to ignore it because that seems like the best course of action. And then when work finishes today, I will just, uh, you know, drink until it doesn't hurt anymore. That's, that's <laughs> what we do, right? That's, that's, that is the, that is how you treat these things in, at our, our age and time in life. That's, we are getting old. We are getting up there. We're getting, if you can go outside and, uh, sit on your porch and yell at passersby, you know, that would be, you know. I could do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do now. I did. I had a, I, when I was putting up the Christmas lights this year, JD, mm-hmm. um, I, I stepped in, um, dog mess in my, in my front. Oh, crap. And, and exactly. And I, uh, I don't have a dog. No, you so, don't. So, um, You'd I like I, a dog, but you don't have one. I have been. So it's like insult been, to injury. It is. And I, I have started looking askance and throwing evil eyes and, shaking my fist at people as they walk their dogs past my front lawn and if the dog sort of stops and looks at my fence funny i'm just like move your dog i not did you photograph the mess because if you photograph the mess and then photograph the dogs you could probably do a pretty good analysis of just a, a probability analysis of which dog it was um no i i have no images of of the mess undisturbed because i i stepped at it in fairly heavy boots and i did so in the dark while i was putting up christmas decorations so yeah well no, that's probably for the best Probably. Okay. Uh, anyway, so, so I'm sorry that you're hurting, and I'm sorry that you have messy boots. What else What else is going on? Well, actually, no, it's funny. Before we get started with what we're actually going to talk about on the show, I, I would like your advice, please. I know. You told me that the other day, and I've been feeling basically great about myself ever since because I just thought, well, let me add Ed to the list of people who might want my advice, which right now yeah, is, is Ed, you, basically. You are... Um, you're, 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 the, you're the only one on my list. You're buddy. a reasonably well-educated canon lawyer. Um <laughs> <laughs> thank thank you i can say that because we went to the same school um yeah mm-hmm. and you uh you are also a, a husband and a father and true. an active parishioner true and uh, you have strong feelings about local parishes and territoriality and as i said a firm grounding in canon law and so i would like your advice as as all of these things as a husband a father or a parishioner a loyal son of the church and a canonist um i have a child okay and She's of an age. She's more than a year old now. We okay. can say that. Is she a baptized and member of the Christian faithful? She is. Okay. She is, of course, a baptized member of the Christian faithful. She confirmed? And, uh, no. Okay, I just no. want to get the facts. Yeah. No, that um, different argument for a different time, but mm-hmm. I, I take your point. Um, my wife is interested in um, putting her name down for the for the excellent, by all accounts, uh, what I would call nursery, what some people might call Montessori, whatever you know, preschool program. Your wife wants to sign your daughter up for a preschool at the par- it's a part of the parish school. Yes, school 
preschool. Yes. And um, so my wife was filling in the paperwork and she came across a box that she was unfamiliar with. And uh, she asked me if I knew what it meant. And I think I do. Um, and and I had a particular reaction. You, you might call it emotional, perhaps visceral. Um, Hold on. I just want to set the scene. Your wife is filling out the registration form for your daughter to go to preschool. Yes. There's a box that she has to check. And checking Not, this box, I feel like it's a real Checking this box sent you into a spiral. And you not checking know a box, I, filling in a box. Filling in a box sent you into a spiral, and you want to know what I think about that. Yes. Okay. And what I should do. I want, you I should, want your. Yeah. I want practical advice from you. What I should yeah. do. Because what the box asked me for was our parishioner number. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And you are... To go ahead and tell the people why why this why this has you vexed. Uh, well, it has me vexed, JD, and truly, I am vexed by this. Is because one is a member of one's parish by virtue of being a member of the Christian faithful present in the territory. Of the, the, the parish, parish is indeed constituted by the, what is the parish, but a, uh, a stable community of the Christian faithful entrusted to a pastor as its proper pastor, and delineated that by and that geography. that ordinarily delineated by geography right so ordinarily a parish is defined territorially such that it is according to canon law all of the bapt all of the christians between a street and f street and center street and west street in accord with the boundaries defined in the parish statutes or decree of erection yes and, and so if you are if you are a member of the christian faithful within those um boundaries indeed you are a constitutive member of the parish indeed and and yet I have been for some time uh, in the course of my my work as a canon lawyer, um, been aware of what was, I was told, the common American practice of enrollment, um, of signing up on a list, adding your name to a register, mm-hmm. receiving a an identity number. Doesn't that sound <laughs> Catholic? <laughs> Mostly, as I understand it, for the purposes of receiving something called envelopes, which people, or envelopes, if you prefer, and... Um, and filling them with money, I assume. Now, I obviously contribute regularly to my to my local parish because you have an obligation to do because so. Because I have an obligation to, I obligation do so. To support the needs of the church, including sacred worship and the decent support of clergy. Indeed, and I and do so anonymously because you know the gospel recommends that strongly. And um, I I have put my name down on no lists because I am dispositionally disinclined to register to things or to you know do such things. And it's never it's never crossed my mind that there would be a list to add my name to in my local parish because again, um, this is not envisaged in the law whatsoever or in the church's understanding of what a parish is. So I have I have right now an inclination to pause for a minute because there's. A hoover right over my head, but no one um, hears the vacuum. You got to stop. Ed has this deep paranoia that we can hear a vacuum, and you might hear a very, very slight fan if you have your speakers turned up all the way. But we just got to power through and record the podcast. Nobody right. hears so, the vacuum. JD, too. my my knee jerk reaction on being asked to supply my number um, <laughs> is is of course to go and burn the parish offices to the ground. <laughs> now, I I I'm trying. And I have successfully so far mastered this instinct um, not to write a stinging letter of complaint, file a canonical recourse, um, call the pastor and tell him exactly what I think of this ridiculous Protestant innovation um, and remind him of my canonical rights and so on and so forth. I have not done this because it is important for me to remember I know that not everyone has a reflexive familiarity with the church's law 
on the- many of the people who do not, for example, and I just feel it is important to say this, are well-intentioned exactly. and otherwise well-formed members of the Christian faith who exactly. aim to serve the parish by their hard work. And it exactly. is not their fault that their theological problem no. or, or their theological formation didn't include a sufficient amount of canon law. Exactly. And and I, I have been very mindful. And they are overworked and underappreciated. Yes, underappreciated and, and often have to deal with angry cranks calling right. the office, trying to tell them about the code of canon law, I'm sure. So I have mastered myself thus far because I don't want to be that guy. And everyone I have ever encountered at our local parish, from the pastor on down, has been faultlessly nice, wonderful people, alive with the practice of the faith. Yes. Good souls all. Yes. And I don't want to be the guy who throws rocks. Yes. Okay. On so- the other hand. Yes. It's, it's not right, JD. It's just <laughs> not right. It's illegal. Well, I would not say it is illegal. It is praetor legem, right? It is. Nope. It is beyond- may, I, may I add a little more context and then you might change your mind? All right. The purpose of adding your number is this affects a discount. I understood. I understood. Okay. A discount which is a, applied to parishioners. Yes. Do you have the policy? The, the policy? Do you have the policy which delineates the discount? Um, the the terms under which the discount is applied. No, it, it it I mean it's a line on the form that says you know you fill in your parish number here brackets parishioners pay X all others pay Y. Okay, because if the policy simply said those who are registered pay X and those who are who are not pay Y, it would seem to me to be within the prerogative of the parish to incentivize registration of, of parishioners if it felt a desire to do so for the sake of good record keeping or census making or what have you. I see. Um, it, it is not, uh, it is the practice in American parishes, uh, by and large, uh, not to regard the parish principally as territorial. Um, in fact, m- many people, I think, ha- don't have a sort of initial uh, awareness of the parish as a territorial reality unless they listen to this show and hear us talk about it, et cetera, et cetera. Most people, I think, think about the parish as a place. The parish is the place, the church, the and when we say the parish is the people, they don't think of that as essentially constitutive. Rather, they think it as a sort of platitude towards a community, et cetera, when right. indeed it's a constitutive reality. Um, and therefore, um, and, and that's just the consequence of contemporary formation. I, I'm not sort of impugning any anything to anyone who, who thinks that way, because that's just the ordinary disposition in Catholic life in America uh, today. Uh, again, and this is why I haven't done anything and I wanted to seek your advice, is because I'm aware my own strong reaction. Yes is not in any way a reflection on the, as I say, excellent people at the parish. So Wonderful people. Yeah. So what we need to talk about is this notion of registration. What is it, right? What what kind of animal is it? What is happening when one registers in the parish and is assigned? Because I presume you're assigned a parishioner number at the time when you register in the parish. What what is it? That's my understanding. It is a custom. It is a custom in the United States which is beyond the law, a custom which we might call... Praetor legem beyond the law, and as a custom, and, and it is a custom which is praetor legem, which is generally understood, often without definition, but generally understood to confer upon a person the rights and obligations of a parishioner to to effectively create legal equivalents to parishioner status by virtue of the custom of registration. 
I think that is the general understanding. Now, we have talked on this show in the past about the way in which that presents certain unresolved pastoral problems. If I register in a parish that's all the way across town, do I have a right as does a parishioner to expect certain pastoral care when I'm on my deathbed and these kinds of things? You know, um, we have we have raised certain sort of both pastoral and juridic challenges related to this custom that I think are largely unresolved in the law. But let's say that on the whole, what we have is a custom which is intended in one way or another to confer upon um, upon registrants the rights and obligations of a parishioner. In this case, it seems that the desire that that the, the 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 right, or at least the privilege extended to parishioners, is a discount because they call it a parishioner discount and they ask for your number. Correct. Which is fine. They they say we have we effectively regard such persons who have registered as parishioners and. Um, registration even has a value for those who are indeed territorial parishioners if the pastor wants to conduct a census of the parish such that he knows who his people uh, are. Again, I, I don't have a problem with the idea of the parish wanting to maintain accurate roles and encouraging the faithful to keep themselves duly enrolled for the purposes of good record keeping and everything. That I, But while fine. registration may confer upon those who live outside of the territory a certain expectation of the rights and obligations of a parishioner. Again, unclear to me exactly how defined that is in law. But while it may confer, if nothing else, an expectation of the rights and obligations of a parishioner, perhaps even a mutual expectation, um, it does not, and therefore it has a sort of juridic effect, it does not have a juridic effect on those who live in the territory of the parish. Those who live in the territory of the parish are parishioners before they register in the parish and parishioners after they register in the, in the parish. Whether they do it or not, they are indeed constitutive parishioners of the parish. Yes, and right? this is this is from whence my reaction is that it appears to be not so much a question of can you enfranchise those who live outside of the territory by means of this, which is fine, as you say, it's praetor legem, but you know that is a that is I would say within the legitimate discretion of the pastor, etc. Right. It is the implied disenfranchisement of true parishioners if they don't also, and that right. seems to me to be problematic. Now, if the policy were differently worded, again, I would just say this. If the policy were differently worded such that it said those who are registered with a parishioner with, with a number are entitled to a discount, I think that it would be – you would have – there would be nothing to say to you except register if you want the discount because it is within the prerogative of the parish – the pastor as the juridic representative of the parish to establish that he wants to incentivize registration in that manner. He has not said that. He has said in, instead on this form that the discount is extended to parishioners. Well, I, I, we're assigning – we're assigning this to the pastor here. That's, the pastor is a juridic representative of the parish. Those I who work in the parish, but I want to make it clear his, that this is not in fact a his personal of discretion of the pastor. This is you're you're using the word pastor to mean the person who has the juridic personality of the parish. Is no. that not the pastor? It is the pastor. I'm just okay. I'm making that clear that to the, say pastor the pastor may not have created the form, but the form is created via the authority of the pastor, and the exactly. policy is created exactly. via the authority yes. of the pastor. It is the Precisely. pastor's policy. Yes. Okay. So. Um, you could, I think, you well within your be well within your rights to appropriately request that the parishioner discount be extended to you apart from registration. To say, I have not registered, but I am indeed a constituent member of the parish. Here is my the address of my domicile, and I am you know, and I am therefore a part of this stable community of the Christian faithful. Are you aware of the territorial limits of the parish? Are you are you certain that you live within the territory of the parish? I am ninety nine percent certain. Okay, I. I I can virtually see the church from my house. Yeah, I would be gerrymandering, man. I, I'm aware, but you think I have you're probably yeah. You're willing to you're willing to stake a claim on it. I'm willing to stake a. There is a, there is a. I believe there is a um, a township line 
uh, a little bit further on from my house, on the other side of which uh, another parish resides, and I believe the township line to be the parochial line. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's assume for the sake of argument that I definitely, definitely am, because I wish to I, I wish to flesh this out in theory and yeah. then worry about the, the you, practice. You would be well, I think, within your right to append a note to the application which says, Dear Executive Director of the Preschool uh, and Father Pastor, um, though I have not completed um, the registration process provided by the parish, I am indeed a parishioner. My address is X within the territory of the parish, and I am not only a parishioner as a, as a member of the stable community of the Christian faithful, but I am also, to a certain extent, an active parishioner as evidenced by my X, Y, and Z. Um, therefore, I would uh, hope and expect and appreciate that the parishioner discount be extended to me. I think you would be well within your rights to do that. And I think, indeed, it might... It prob- what probably would happen is the executive director of the preschool would say, I don't know what this is. Send it to the parish secretary who would say, I don't know what this is. Send it to the pastor who would scoff, roll his eyes. Perhaps he's a listener or a reader, in which case it would maybe give him a little bit of delight. But if, if he's not a listener or a reader, maybe he would pop a couple of um, a Tums and then write a little I, I note don't, that says, I guess. Yeah, I don't believe he's a reader or a listener because we, we've met and spoken on several occasions and um, he, he betrayed no such knowledge of my day job, which is great. It's one of the things I love most about yeah. this parish. But your parish is populated with a disproportionate number of folks who work professionally in the faith in one way or another. There are p- folks who work at the USCCB in your parish, folks who work for the Archdiocese of Washington, folks who teach at a Catholic University in your region. And so your parish is populated by a fair number of people who I suspect have what I would call religious peculiarities. And therefore, I suspect, although he probably has not gotten this one before, because I don't think there are other canonists residing in your parish, I suspect he has gotten other religious peculiarities raised to him before, and I suspect he has grown accustomed to dealing with these religious peculiarities with a light touch. If for no other reason, then he also has the unfortunate circumstance in that many of his parishioners are folks who work in the church and have something of a platform. And I suspect he has learned already not to have a headache by having the, prob- the minor problems of the parish aired out as a national issue playing across social media. Which I would never do. Which you would never do, and I know that, and you know that, and our listeners know that, and he might know that, but he pro- nevertheless has probably realized he needs to approach religious peculiarities with a light touch, and probably would approach yours with a light touch as well. And indeed, Ed, it, you might even, by doing such a thing appropriately, the Christian faithful have the right to make known, and at times even the duty, to make known to their sacred pastors their opinions on matters pertaining to the faith and morals, if they do so in, in an appropriate manner, in any number of ways, without scandal, and with appropriate regard for their sacred pastors, and those kinds of things. You, you may, perhaps you even have a duty for it, because it might affect change in the the, 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 the policy related to the prisoner discount, and that might be of benefit to others who are not registered, but who are domiciled in the pair. So perhaps that would be good. Uh, on the other hand, what you must ask yourself, and this is what I have had to ask myself many times in my life as a canonist, a married man, and a father, is whether it mightn't be more prudent to do whatever it is that Mrs. Condon would like for you to do. <laughs> now, I don't know. I mean, if you call up today and say, I need a parishioner number, I don't know if they'll give you it. It might be too late. They might say, oh, you're just trying to get it for the form, in which case, you know, you're going to have to go the route of a letter and all these things because you want to prove your preexisting. You, what you don't want to do is um, get a parishioner number now and simply fill that in in such a way that they assess that you have only acquired a parishioner number for sake of 
thing. So you still probably would attach a note that says, although I have only recently registered and acquired a parishioner number, I have indeed been domiciled here for so long, and I have indeed been an active parishioner for so long, and therefore it seems appropriate to me to be regarded not only as a parishioner since my registration, but long before. That would seem to me to be important. I um, hadn't considered that the... You do you not see, want I to thought... consider to have made a registration of convenience. Oh, I hadn't even considered. I, I thought that the magnanimous way forward for me would be to simply knuckle under, fill in the forms, get the envelopes or envelopes if you prefer, um, acquire the number and finish, you know, complete the form and send it off and, you know, make a mental note to myself that if I find myself in a social situation with the pastor to mention that, you know, haha, it would be nice if I didn't have to do this because, of course, it does seem to me to present a, a, a canonical talking point. We could say, but you are saying that if I knuckle under now, I could in fact be penalizing myself further. That's what I'm concerned about. So this is what we need to know. How selective is the preschool admission and what are the criteria? Is the preschool uh, selecting? Is there a wait list or something? I know like that? it to be oversubscribed. Okay, I don't and know are they selecting sele- for parish act for active parishioners? Is there an admissions bias for active and engaged parishioners? I don't know. If there is. That is the case where the appearance of a registration of convenience might, in fact, um, undermine your daughter's chances of admission. But I am known to be an active parishioner and a regular attendee at Mass. By, I know this be- by because whom? by people in the parish because they by come up to me in the, in the parking parish. lot sometimes and talk to me. The preschool director. I well, I don't know, JD. Right. I've only it, had exactly. the one kid for and a little so while. So the danger that been... you have is that if indeed they, there's some selection bias, some admission bias for per, per, parishioner activity, that she might type your number in and find, oh, lo, this name, the name of this man I do not recognize, registered for the parish on December 16th and applied for his daughter's preschool admission on December the 19th. Clearly, this is a registration of convenience, and so we'll put it at the bottom of the pile when we're ranking these for parishioner activity preference, should that be an issue. And you, what you don't want to do is to, to cause some problem with Mrs. Condon that would lead to your daughter's exclusion from enrollment in the preschool. I suspect that would be the least, the, the oh. least beneficial end, game, you know, end result for both you and your daughter. I'm, I'm going back to my jerry can of gasoline at this point no you oughtn't you're you've talked me back i had talked myself into don't be a jerk just fill in the forms and you have now spun me right back up tight again and i i don't want to be a jerk jd i I don't like the parish i really like this parish they are nice people may i make a suggestion yes what i would suggest is that you call father pastor after we finish making this podcast yeah and you ask father pastor if you can discuss the situation with him and you make clear to him, you make a father pastor an ally in doing the thing which will lead to your wife's happiness. You say to him, I have a sticky wicket. I do not know how to navigate it or bowl it or whatever it is that you do with you, a sticky wicket. Technically, you're on a sticky wicket. I, I am okay. on a sticky wicket and I am stuck there um, like a fly on a piece of sticky wicked flypaper and I need your help because I would like to navigate this intractable situation in the way that leads to the most domestic happiness for me. And Father Pastor will probably tell you what to do and you will express to him your concern. If there is some activity-based admission evaluation, I do not want the appearance of a new number to suggest that I am making again a registration of convenience. I will take your advice with the slight modification that I will do this after Mass on Sunday. No, 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 no. No, I not have the hope, but say, can I speak to you about something, and can we talk later? You know, when is the paper due? The admission paper. It's not due. This is we're doing this ad hoc. We're... I see. 
Yes, that might be We're fine. Being proactive. Although Father Pastor perhaps might not have his calendar, and it's very possible, in my experience, that Father Pastor, after Mass on Sunday, may well say to you, uh, please call my office on Monday to schedule an appointment. That is the ordinary course of things. In I'm m- fine with that, but the, the reason for this is he's more likely to recognize me visually. That he has seen you. Father Pastor, you see me now. You see me exiting Mass here at your parish. But more importantly, you have seen me before in these pews. You have seen me before. In this building. You have inquired after the baptismal status of my child. That's right. Hello, Father Pastor. Yes. Yes. I think that is probably a very good idea. But I would would make a Father Pastor an ally in the navigation of this situation. Okay. This sounds like a good plan. All right. I will do this. And I want to stress again. I don't want to be a jerk because I really I understand like these people. And that you I don't, don't want to screw it up. I really don't want to screw it up. <clears throat> yeah, and it's all fun and games until it's your child. I mean, I have strong oh, opinions no, I don't, about... I don't, you know, whatever. My child will be fine. I'm, I'm not worried it's about that. It's all fun that. and games until me. it pertains to what, what, your, what Mrs. Condon wants to see happen. Exactly. I have strong opinions about certain matters pertaining to the formation, the Christian formation of my family and our life and the parish, et cetera, as well. And what I have learned is that sometimes one must swallow one's convictions or at least suspend one's convictions if they are not, do not pertain to faith and morals as such in a direct manner. Now, I actually argue with that. You you have argued, and this is why I wanted your advice, that the territoriality of a parish directly affects faith and the morals. Territorial, the territoriality of a parish directly affects faith and moral, morals in ways that are significant. But registration in the parish census is not a matter of faith and morals, and you can do it. You have not done I, I'm, it. I'm not suggesting I can't do it for moral reasons. I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not being a sort of um, Christian scientist, I don't want a blood transfusion or whatever <laughs> it is. I, I'm not saying that. I, I, yeah, my concerns are, okay, you've helped me with this. Thank you. I, I, will, I will, with meekness and, and geniality, attempt to court the favor and support of Father Pastor on making sure that I conform to the expectations and norms of the time and place. Because I want these people to like me, J.D. I or know. at least I want them to not dislike me. Might I make a suggestion? Okay. Do not bring with you when you meet with Father Pastor. <laughs> no, I would bring with you the code. I think that's reasonable and fine. I would not bring with you your badge and you had when you okay, were in canon law studies made a canon right. lawyer badge and it's very cute and it's fun to bring out a canon law parties and you bring it out with some degree of regularity no matter where we are no matter where i take you it's probably likely that you're going to whip out your badge at some point and that's fine but i would suggest that at this moment you leave it on the shelf you go you you be an undercover for this one ed could you be a plain clothes on this one but not just I a plain will. clothes undercover wear a wire if you i mean if you want to wear a wire i'm fine with it because <laughs> i'm not like going to wear a wire again i am not looking to stir up trouble but I, don't I would want... like to listen to this so if you meet with father pastor and you're willing to wear a wire i would like to hear it i think a lot of our listeners would like to hear it no i'm not doing that i, I like these people. he's a good guy the one party consent state i believe so so then you could wear a wire I, I could, but that's not the point. I, I don't want to. I don't want to. JD, I don't want to. You're escalating. I came to you to talk me down, and you are you are escalating. I would just say that you should consider this from all angles, and that Father Pastor will want to be your ally. If for no other reason than if you approach this correctly, he will find it endearing, amusing. He it okay. will, to a certain in a certain way, delight him. Okay. Should I wear... Some sort of pillar shirt. No, there is the chance many clerics. You, you would feel that that would be like in the in the metaphor of Cardinal Gregory 
going in with a gun on the table. (laughs) Yeah, he might feel that it is a subtle signal that if this is not resolved appropriately, he would face broad consequences. And I will say, as a person who has had in recent years, even while we have... To be clear, I'm not suggesting that I would ever, you know, I would never treat the issues of my local parish as a national... It would never... I, I'm not looking to, you know, strong arm the guy. I would, however, if he is, you know, a secret pillar reader, I would like to traffic on the implied goodwill therein, though. I, I, all I'm saying is I want special sure. treatment. That's I, I want. <laughs> that. You shouldn't, though, because you're doing this for justice, right? I mean, you're do, you, you are going to try and make of him an ally, but I'm not even, doing this for justice. I'm doing this for myself. You, but even if he tells you how to navigate the situation in the best possible way. You might also then bring up to him how parishioners, constitutive members of the parish, might navigate this if they did not have the kind of ecclesial sense and goodwill and formation that you have, and see if he might do something for them. Okay, but I'm going to get mine first. That seems all right. Fair enough. All right. Okay. Ed, uh, there's something I want to talk about, too. <laughs> that took a lot longer than I was anticipating. Well, it but... was an important conversation, and I think it's good to resolve and work through your problems. Um, and uh, and if anyone, by the way, if any of my co-parishioners are listening, don't rat me out. Guys, <laughs> come on. What if you get there and he's already heard all about this? Then I, then the parish is not the wonderful safe space that I have heretofore <laughs> thought it was. It wouldn't be a very synodal reality. Okay. Um, Ed, I have some things I want to talk about too, but um, we will be right back after this word from our sponsor. Friends, are you looking for a way to elevate your practice of the Christian faith on a daily basis? Are you wondering if maybe there's something that can help you start a new prayer regimen maybe, or just keep better track of your progress in the spiritual life? Well, if so, you're in luck. Listeners, God is calling you to greatness, to sainthood. But I think most of us can be honest and say that in our day-to-day life, we are not always experiencing the fullness of what God wants to give us, and we are not always living the Christian life in the way that we want. And no matter what your Catholic vocation, The Saint Maker is a -a one-of-a-kind personal journal and planner which aims to help you reignite your faith, to have success in the projects you're working on and success in your goals, and to experience real spiritual freedom. Backed by modern productivity science, there has never been a resource like the Saint Maker to keep you focused, productive, and on fire for the faith every day. And if you happen to be, as for example, I am just incredibly disorganized about keeping track of everything, this is the kind of thing that can help. The Saint Maker is really cool because it does combine the best of a really good planner with um, the best kinds of discipline in the spiritual life for just tracking your prayer life and for making time for prayer. The, the, the Saint Maker helps you to make time for prayer and to think about what you want in the spiritual life and to take time to examine your interior life and your consciousness of God's will and presence and grace in your life. And I think that's probably why lots of people are already using the Saint Maker. They're already saying that it's been really beneficial for them. And uh, we here at the Pillar Podcast are really glad to have the Saint Maker as a sponsor. Because with the Saint Maker's free trial offer, you can try it out for 90 days risk-free. So that's trying it out, Ed, for 90 days risk-free. You can write in your planner when the 90-day period ends so that you know and you'll see it coming up. And if you decide by then that it's not for you, you can return the Saint Maker even after 90 days for a full refund, including shipping. If you want to find out more about this, please visit thesaintmaker.com slash pillar and use the promo code PILLAR, all capitals, at checkout. Go to your web browser, type in thesaintmaker.com slash pillar and use the promo code PILLAR, all caps, for your 10% discount 
today. That's right. Listeners to the Pillar Podcast get a 10% discount on The Saint Maker, thesaintmaker.com slash pillar. And we're back. Ed to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation. Each week we have been talking about parish registration and... <laughs> The prudent way ways to, in which I cannot be a jerk. The prudent ways to address certain issues in your life. Um, but I want what I want to talk about now is something that I actually have been talking to you about for as long as we've been working together and for as long as we have been friends. Um, because uh, uh, do you know what it is that, that I want to talk about? No, but I'm immediately worried. The dots. I want oh, to talk the about dots. the dots. Okay. Oh, so I thought you wanted to talk about excommunication, but okay. No. So. Several years ago, five, no, seven, maybe a little more than that, quite some time ago, maybe ten, maybe nine, quite some time ago, uh, I was in Poland. I was in Krakow, Poland, um, with uh, with an organization called the Tertio Millennio Seminar, which is a neat um, seminar for Eastern European Catholics and young American Catholics to get together and to read Catholic social teaching together in Krakow. It's really quite interesting. But I was with it must the, have been a long time ago if you were a young. <laughs> I went a little older than most actually. But anyway, I was with the Tertio Millennio Seminar and I was in Krakow and we went to the Polish sort of national shrine of John Paul II. And at the Polish national shrine of John Paul II, we saw mosaics everywhere. The whole place is mosaiced. Um, you know, little tiles of tile with making pictures. And people know uh, what a mosaic is. I, <laughs> Okay. The whole place is mosaic. And I noticed something in one of the mosaics that struck me. It was in the upper church, and it was um, in the sanctuary. There was a large mosaic of some depicting some Christian scene. And uh, in the upper right-hand corner of the mosaic, it was a large blue disc. And uh, when I say large, it was probably—it's hard to gauge, you know, distance from things. But it was—I'd um, was, I'd have to imagine it was— six to 12 inches across. Certainly it was almost as big as the heads of the figures in the scene, um, but it was just sitting there. It didn't really fit into the scene, just a large blue disc. And when I looked across the mosaic, I saw a, in the sort of upper right-hand corner, I saw a large orange disc, and I didn't know what those meant. And I looked around at a few other mosaics in the church, and um, there were other discs, colored discs, orange, blue, red, yellow, I believe, discs in the corners of some of these mosaics. And I asked um, someone, I, I can't remember. See, the thing is, a lot of this is really hazy for me, but I asked someone, either a tour guide who I traveled to the to the shrine with or a person who worked at the shrine, I asked them about those discs, and they told me that they had some catechetical meaning, that they had some value whereby a person who understood the discs could look at them and it would tell them something about the mosaic they were looking at or an order in which to talk about the different mosaics for some catechetical purpose. They suggested to me that there was some catechetical meaning to the discs, and it stuck in my mind that I didn't know about it and I wanted to know more about it. Well, fast forward a couple of years, and I'm in the shrine. That, I have a question. Sir. Were these just not the sun? No, they the were moon? not representative of the sun. They did not fit into the picture as a graphical representation of something that was happening in the picture. They were just discs. Ink blots. Uh, yeah, they were circular. Like cigarette burns in the, in the old um, film reels. If, if you will, I suppose. Um, you know what any, I mean by the cigarette burns? No. At any rate. Oh, so, what, J.D., when you when you would watch a film on film in a in an old projection style, so before everything became digital, and you would have the reels of film, you would you would be able to see, and you can, if you watch like old trailer footage from films in the 80s and, and so on, you can still see them. Um, you would see these little circles in the top uh, right hand. As you and they told you when to change the reel. Yes, exactly. Real markers, but I didn't know those were made with cigarettes. I thought they were made with a tool. They call them cigarette burns in the industry because they, you know. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not. You burn the film with a cigarette. Not in the industry. 
as it happens, neither of us is in the industry, but I guess you know <laughs> know something about the biz, as it were. Uh, so fine, cigarette. If anyone wants to come to me with a film deal, I'm open to it. But you know. <laughs> Okay, so a few years later, I was in the um, National Shrine of uh, John Paul II in, in Washington, D.C., in the, 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 the U.S., you know, you know it. The Mita thing. The, yes, people know where Washington D.C. is. The Mita thing. The thing that Mita built. The, the house that the house that Adam built, if you will. I was in the National Shrine of the John Paul II in Washington D.C., and um, I was in the chapel there on the first floor, um, the sort of southern part of the first floor. You know where the chapel is. And uh, I was looking at the mosaics which adorn the sanctuary, and I saw a colored disc, and I was curious. My curiosity was piqued, and I believe that chapel is named the Redemptorist Mater Chapel. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, or something like that. And for some reason in my mind, the art seemed evocative of the artwork of the neocatechumenal way. I'm not sure that it actually is or not, but the artwork in both of those places seemed in certain ways evocative of the artwork of the neocatechumenal way to me, or the sort of aesthetic style of the neocatechumenal way. And so um, I, I thought maybe these mosaics were done by members of the neocatechumenal way or something like that. They had some affiliation to it. A redemptorist mater is a neocat term. You know, it's a Catholic term, but neocats use it a lot. So I thought maybe this was something. No, their seminaries are all. Yeah, their seminaries are all redemptive. Yeah. So anyway, so I started asking people, neocats, about these discs, and they all looked at me like I had about 12 heads. And I started asking other people, art people, about these discs, and they all looked at me like I had 12 heads. But every so often, I would be somewhere in some sacred space in Rome or Lourdes or somewhere in the U.S., and I would see a mosaic with that disc and i could not unpack it and i it has I have been a question a question yes. at this point at what stage during this multi-year process did you begin to develop a sort of da vinci code national treasure style <laughs> conspiracy theory in your mind that you decided if you could crack the disc code you would find the tomb of pope joan or whatever i i did not I did. I knew that something was happening. There was some unity between these pictures, but I had I had been become convinced in my own mind that in some way that this was a neocat thing. And so, what I came to believe is that the discs were some sort of neocat secret that one would learn after a certain level of whose meaning one would learn after a certain level of initiation. Why? Because this chapel in DC was called Redemptor Mater. I'm pretty sure that the chapel in Krakow had some Redemptor Mater name because the 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 same disc exists in the Redemptor Mater chapel or something like that in the Apostolic Palace of uh, of the Holy Father. So there there was this unicity between discs Use of the phrase that I associate with neocats because they're seminaries and mystery, which I associate with the neocats as well, that many of their practices are somewhat mysterious and esoteric. And also there's Spanish style art that they have. So all of these things combined for me to come to believe that in some way these discs were conveying messages to neocats um, all around the world. And uh, and at least neocats at certain levels of initiation. And every neocat I asked, I'd meet a neocat. Hey, how's it going? Where from? Blah, blah, blah. Tell me about the discs. And neocats universally for years have looked at me like I am crazy and told me they don't know about the discs. And what I have assumed is that either they are conditioned to keep the secret of the discs or that the disc secret is only available to those at a certain level of neocat initiation. This has been my operative theory. Now, obviously, I would never publish this theory. I would never write about this theory on the pillars if it were fact. I would never give a talk about this theory. I kept it to myself because I know that I don't have any proof of this. It was just something that I saw that no one else seemed to see and some practice which I came to believe. And I would ask people, what do you think about the discs? And people who would see the same things as me did not seem to have noticed the discs. And it drove me nuts. I do not like, as you know, being kept out of a secret. That is 70% of how I got to this job. Did it ever occur to you you just had cataracts? 
No, because they're there. They're there. They're not only there in person. They're there in images. They're there. I have did not doubt that they were there. Well, the church in Europe is in the middle of a very significant um, uh, uh, clerical sexual abuse scandal that has implications for the Society of Jesus, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, and indeed Pope Francis himself. It is a very serious, very painful, very difficult clerical abuse scandal involving a Jesuit priest named Father Marco Rubnik, a Slovenian. We have to talk about that scandal. But I have to tell you that what that scandal has meant for me um, among other things, is the cracking open of the disc mystery. Because what I have learned in recent weeks that as we have covered the Rupnik scandal, and we have covered it, is that I have looked at the work of Rupnik, and uh, I have noticed that indeed the chapels in which the discs appear are the chapels which Rupnik himself, this Jesuit priest artist who is now accused of clerical sexual abuse in multiple contexts and seemed to admit it to one, and we're going to talk about all that, that the chapels which Rupnik designed or was commissioned to design contain the discs. Rupnik, and not the Neocats, is the center of the disc mystery. I, I have a question. Yeah. In all the years that this was bothering you, yeah, and in all the weird fever dreams that you concocted against an aggregate of spiritual goods that had nothing to do with the thing that you were, in fact, thinking about, it never occurred to you to Google the yes. iconographer? Yes, it did. Google Ed Disc... No, because I would never remember quite where I saw it. It was always like I saw it, and then I was like, oh, I saw that again, and then I'm doing yeah, something I'm else. Clear like, if you Google icon disc, disc mystery, Neocat you're not going to get mystery. anything good. No, I did I not you put. Did, you, I did not you put you the kind Google of, who decorated the Redemptor Spider Chapel in the JP2. I did not put the kind of work into it that I might have if I were covering it as a story, because I wanted because I I I, I had some. You didn't reason put the kind of work into it that I would have put in making a grocery do. order. I understand that. No, Ed. I wanted, I, I wanted, I was blind to the possibility of investigating it because I wanted a Neocat to reveal to me the Neocat secret of the discs. I didn't investigate. I, this was not something that I was treating in the manner that I treat many, many things in my professional life. It was more just this backwards preoccupation, preoccupation in my mind. And it never occurred to me that it, 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 I was so certain that it was a Neocat reality that I never even considered the possibility that it wasn't a Neocat reality. But I was That's wrong. Strange, it wasn't. It wasn't a Neocat reality. Um, I learned... It was a Jesuit reality. It was a Jesuit reality, or more to the point, a Rupnik reality. I learned, as I was looking at the Rupnik work, that Rupnik had commissioned the things. So, I first asked uh, an art historian, a very, very accomplished art art historian, one with a great professional reputation and a great deal of artistic training. I said, hey, I noticed that Rupnik's painting, or mosaics have all these discs, and I sent them to her. Do you know anything about them? And and she said, uh, 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 I don't really know. I don't know much about this person's artistic work, um, but I think the discs might be a reference to the sun. Um, oh, oh, it is the sun. Or the moon, but that's all I got. You laughed at me when I suggested that. I found that unsatisfactory. So I wrote, Rupnik is the executive director of an artistic center associated with the Pontifical College Orient, the, the Pontifical Oriental College, which is for the College for the Eastern Catholic Churches. Um, so I wrote to the central uh, atelier, the center that he is executive director of, and I asked them, it took me a little bit of working to it, but I asked them about the discs and what I was told by a spokesperson, I sent them a bunch of examples. What I was told is, hello, thank you for your request. There is not a unique meaning itself. It, by which he means the discs, because my que- the question I phrased to him was, um, I've noticed in a number of mosaics the presence of a large colored circle in one of the upper corners. I've included some examples here. I was once told that those circles had some catechetical meaning to Father Rubnik or were meant to convey something catechetically. Can you please explain? 
Hello. There's not a unique meaning itself to the disc, the implication. It has a value of reading aid as a counterpoint or as a balance of forms. The circle, therefore, recalls the symbol of divinity, which has no beginning and no end. Also, colors do not have a unique meaning. Usually red is for divinity and blue for humanity. Hope that helps. Best regards. Uh, I have learned, I have solved the mystery that the discs are an artistic signature of this Father Marco Rupnik who we're going to talk about in a moment. I have learned that the discs do not have a unique meaning in and of themselves, that they have value as a reading aid, as a counterpoint, or as a balance of forms, that they recall the symbol of divinity, which has no beginning and no end, that the colors, colors in general, apparently, do not have a unique meaning, that usually red is for divinity and blue for humanity. But that is what I know. I wrote back and said, well, what's a reading aid? What does that mean? And my next question was going to be, what does a counterpoint of forms mean? Which I probably could look up if I wanted did but I by any chance ask you to stop emailing them? I have not yet gotten a response, which sometimes happens when I get on a tear. But I have learned, I have solved a mystery, and I want, if nothing else, to apologize to you because for as long as we have been friends, which is longer than we have been working together, I have been asking, uh, I have been asking you if you know anyone who knows about the discs. I have been asking you if you can help me in my efforts to uncover the importance of the discs. If I see that you're running into someone who is uh, who is associated with the Neocats, I've asked you, ask them about the discs, and you have had to endure this curiosity of mine for quite some time i would like to apologize to you the discs ed do not have unique meaning themselves they have a value of reading aid as a counterpoint or a balance of forms they recall the symbol of divinity which has no beginning or no end they do not have by in their colors unique meaning although usually red is for divinity and blue for humanity hope that helps best regards i just think they're weird but i think most modern art is weird okay let's talk about now that we have worked through my long standing set of curiosities Let's talk about this situation with Father Rupnik because it is a it is a pretty serious situation, isn't it? Uh, it? It is quite serious, and and seems to be getting more serious. Although I confess, I I have been having a hard time following because I mean most of the news that seems to be coming out is sort of off the cuff remarks from Jesuits as they enter and exit buildings, um, which I I find unsatisfactory as a means of public accountability or. Um, the dissemination of information for news reporting. Uh, but that's why you you did a report. You did an explainer. It was a very good explainer. Here's what we know. So Father Rupnik is a well-known uh, Jesuit priest in Italy who, who in addition to being a well-known mosaic artist um, and having an affinity for dots, as I call them, uh, is the director of something called the Centro Italia, which is uh, connected to the Pontifical Oriental Institute and which has art and theology and culture and all kinds of things. He um, gave a Lenten retreat in 2020 for the Roman Curia. He met with the Pope in January. He got an honorary doctor from the Catholic University of Brazil a couple of months ago. He's a guy that's pretty well known out there in certain universes. Um, it emerged a couple of weeks ago that Father Rupnik was accused of spiritually abusing in the context of, it sounds like sort of spiritual and psychological abuse and manipulation, perhaps connected to the confessional women in a religious community in his native Slovenia in the 1990s, that while he was chaplain to them, he had abused them. It emerged that um, those allegations were made to the dicastery of the doctrine of the faith uh, in 2021, that someone was appointed to do some investigation into them, that at the conclusion of that investigation, it was determined that any canonical crimes that Father Rupnik might have committed related to the um, these women was barred, time barred by the canonical statute of limitations, which we call prescription, which as a technical matter is not quite the same as a statute of limitations, but nobody cares about that. So that he was, there was a statute of limitations and no canonical charges could be brought forward because of those issues in Slovenia in the 1990s. At the same time, the Jesuits acknowledged that 
that um, at the time the allegation was made, Father Rupnik's ministry was restricted so that he wasn't supposed to do public ministry um, uh, or offer spiritual directions or publicly say ma- – offer spiritual direction or offer the spiritual exercises or publicly say mass or these kinds of things. And uh, that raised a lot of questions because he has a weekly YouTube gospel reading kind of thing where he talks about the readings of the week and because he met with the Pope and because he got this honorary doctorate and because he gave a lecture at the, the uh, Diocese of Rome Seminary on Eucharistic Adoration just a couple of months ago. So it was like if his ministry was restricted, if this is what restricted is, show me unrestricted. You know, he's just doing a lot of stuff as a public figure. So that raised a lot of questions. So there was um, questions being raised about that and Father Zollner, who's the, who is the sort of a Roman Curia's kind of guru on um, procedures related to sexual abuse handling, a kind of ombudsman for victims, said, well, we think the CDF needs to be more straightforward about this. And people said, yeah, maybe the CDF is not being straightforward about why they didn't consider waiving prescription. And Canada's had some debate about whether the CDF could have waived prescription. It's not clear because we don't know what Delix he's actually accused of. So there was all of this and all this question about the restrictions and those kinds of things. And the press really took on this because this is a person of some significance, and he's accused of some very serious things. And it seems that although the Jesuits said his ministry was restricted, he was actually doing ministry. There's no public acknowledgement of any of this. At the same time, some Italian blogs, which had kind of actually initiated all of the reporting about this, reported that um, earlier Father Rupnik had been accused of a, what's called a gravior delicto, a very grave and serious crime in the life of the church, namely the absolution of an accomplice in a sin against the Sixth Commandment of the Decalogue, which is to say attempting to, it's invalid by virtue of the law itself, attempting to sacramentally absolve someone with whom he had some sexual contact. Um, we confirmed, actually, with, an, with a source close to the CDF that the CDF had received such a complaint, although we weren't able to really confirm the disposition of it. We didn't know what had happened when the CDF received the complaint. There had been some reporting about that, some questions about that, how that related. These Italian blogs were saying Pope Francis lifted, he was excommunicated for that, and then Pope Francis himself lifted the excommunication because Jesuits protect their own, these kinds of things. All of this is sort of in the ether, in the air. People are saying it. Da, da, da. This week... Talking to a gaggle of reporters, a group of reporters, uh, Father Arturo Sosa, the prefect or the head, the superior general of the Society of Jesus, the head of the Jesuits, said, uh, "Yeah, yes." In 2019, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith received a complaint of uh, absolution of an accomplice um, in a sin against the Sixth Commandment on the part of Father. The penalty for which is excommunication. The congregation determined indeed that Father had done this. He was excommunicated. He expressed contrition, and the excommunication was lifted. The penalty was remitted. And in fact, his ministry was restricted way back then, which is running contrary to what Father had said just a week earlier, that his ministry was restricted when this other complaint came up in 2021. And more to the point, he was doing stuff. A question. Yes. If I write in understanding what you've just told everyone, me included— that if I've got the timeline right, in 2019, he was accused of sacrilege. Yes, a sacrilegious act is the attempted absolution of an accomplice in the sin. A sacrilege on top of a sexual delict or, you know, the combination well, of a sexual the combination delict. Of in, a sexual, the combination of sexual immorality and, 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 a, sac, and a sacrilege. And a crime against the sacrament. Yes. Was excommunicated. The penalty was remitted. The penalty was remitted, and then coming hot off his excommunication, he preached the Lenten retreat of the Roman Curia. Yes, he preached the Lenten retreat of the Roman Curia. Contula Mesa, the papal preacher, was sick. I'm going to need And so in 2020, he preached the thing. (laughs) Now, the question that raises is, didn't Pope Francis know that he had been excommunicated? I mean, look, the Pope doesn't call his friends and say, hey, would you preach the retreat? But the Pope does have to sign off on the retreat for the Roman Curia. And, and so this guy preached the Sermon of the Thing because Contolomace was sick. And ostensibly, the Pope knew that he had been excommunicated. As Arturo Sosa, uh, as, as Father Sosa said, yeah, it's reasonable to think that Cardinal Ladari, the prefect of the CDF, a Jesuit, would have told 
Pope Francis about this excommunication of a Jesuit, Father uh, Rubnick, and it's perfectly reasonable to conclude that Pope Francis knew, which, given the way that Father Sosa tends to couch things, means Pope Francis probably knew. In that context, with the excommunication presumably having been remitted, Father Rupnik was invited to give a sermon as a part of the spiritual ex- Lenten spiritual exercises of the Staffords of the Roman Curia in 2020 because Father Consolamese was sick. That's bound to help the moral reform of the curial apparatus. It certainly has raised concern about the Pope's appreciation for the significance of sexual crimes in the church and indeed sacramental crimes in the church, their discipline thereof, and 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 sort of the appropriate response afterwards. Now, for what it's worth, the penalty had been remitted, but generally speaking, one does not sort of go from having a penalty for a very serious crime remitted to being restored to the sort of highest and most public and visible kind of public ministry in the church without any any kind of restoration of justice or public accountability. And indeed, while he was giving that Lenten retreat, he was in theory under ministerial restrictions by his religious community, the Society of Jesus. So so basically, the Jesuits considered him, to use a phrase, not safe in taxis, but he's fine to be held up as the sort of person who should be guiding the the spiritual the reflections of, the of conscience of the Roman Curia. Yes, that is why this has become a very big thing. Subsequent to that, my fist through a wall. Subsequent to that, these allegations about spiritual abuse in the 1990s arose. He continued, according to the Jesuits, to have restricted ministry. That restricted ministry continued to include weekly YouTube podcasts about the readings and appearances all over the world, and. Um, and an invitation by the Super Dicastri of Marriage, Family, Lady, Life, and Youth, and, you know, the big one, an invitation from the Big Dicastri for Marriage, Family, Life, Lady, Youth, and other things. I can't remember the name of it now. To design... Lady, Family, and Life. Yeah, thank you. To design the logo of the 2022 World Meeting of Families in Rome. And along with designing the logo, which he did, which was announced in 2021, after he'd been excommunicated, after the penalty was presumably remitted, potentially before, it seems, before the complaints about the spiritual abuse were raised, but after he had been excommunicated for absolving an accomplice in a sin against the Sixth Commandment, uh, he not only designed the logo, but the Dicastri put out laudatory press releases in which he explained the spiritual significance of the logo and the Dicastri put out videos in which he gave lectures explaining the spiritual significance of the logo. The logo was held up as being not just a piece of graphic design, but an icon. A, Is there, a, are there any dots? sacred work. There are no dots in the thing. That's why I didn't know it was okay. his. Um, but uh, that suggests a sort of ongoing affirmation on the part of the Roman Curia of this cleric who absolved an accomplice in against the Sixth Commandment and then uh, had his excommunication remitted. And that has called into question the commitment of the members of the Roman Curia, including the Roman pontiff, to the kind of ecclesiastical reform that we have been talking about for the last few years. That the sexual predation on religious sisters followed by the well, the, crimes at, against the sacrament. For what it's worth, the sexual predation on religious sisters had not yet been reported to the CDF. No, we don't know that. We, we know, don't know. We yet. don't know the full... Well, we know that we, there was there reported in 2021. There were accusations of sexual predation on religious sisters that were subsequently reported to the CDF. The, the the absolution of an accomplice crime does not pertain to the sisters. It pertains to a separate sexual incident with a separate person. I see. We don't know if it's man or woman. Oh, well, that's better. <laughs> um, it's not better. It's uh, it's problematic. It's it's uh, highly scandalous, and it has caused a great deal of consternation for a great many people about how, whether the Holy See is committed and serious about these things and about the Society of Jesus's 
claims to have restricted the ministry of this person who's clearly operating in a public forum. Uh, well, I, no, Father Sosa already made the Jesuits' position perfectly clear last week when he said that basically they had a don't ask, don't tell policy. Yeah, that, and he you also know, nobody said, knew about the accusations against him, so it would be wrong. Right. He has a right to his good public reputation, J.D., and it would be unseemly and unfair to him to point out that he is, in fact, a sex criminal and a blasphemer against the sacraments. And Father Sosa also said that the key now is working towards reconciliation between Father Rupnik and his alleged victims, the sisters. The problem is reconciliation presupposes the restoration of justice and... Any no one I think would look at this the, the the constellation of this situation and saying we see here the restoration of justice or the Rivera scandal or the reform of the offender. So it is. I don't want it to just be a discouraging story, but it it is a it is a complicated one that's hard to follow. In part because the Jesuits, Father Sosa, have given a different story depending on how much information the media already has, and that would suggest that. At the very least, they're having a flexible relationship with the truth, and at the most, they have a flexible relationship with the truth, and there is more to come. And it is discouraging because the Holy the Father, latter. who gave a lecture to America Magazine last month talking about the importance of transparency and how serious we need to be about ecclesiastical reform, apparently didn't see, apparently didn't see, I want to say apparently, because, but apparently didn't see a contradiction between the elevation of Father Rupnik to function as effectively a spiritual uh, guide or mentor to the exemplar an exemplar to the Roman Curia after having been excommunicated for absolving an accomplice in a sin against the sixth commandment of the Decalogue there will be more to come here I have no doubt that more will come out there are more questions one thing that it has led you and I to talk about just a little bit is um, the the kind of canonical regulation of sexual activity on the part of clerics um and I don't know how much we can talk about that, but one of the questions that it raises, because I just don't know how much time we have, but one of the questions that it raises for me that I, I, I think we can do some more reporting on, but I think I, we should just flag it as a kind of question is the, the differing sets of expectations and perceptions about sort of the criminal nature of sexual activity on the part of clerics, let's say celibate clerics, i.e. priests. Here's what I mean. It is a canonical crime for a cleric to have a concubine, a stable sexual relationship with a woman. It is a canonical crime for a cleric to engage in public um, uh, and persistent sexual activity. It is a canonical crime for a cleric to um, uh, engage in sexual activity that involves a minor or the manipulation of a vulnerable person or the abuse of power and abuse of office. It is a canonical crime for a cleric to possess um, child pornography. There are a number of delineated canonical crimes in the church's universal law that pertain in certain ways to the Sixth Commandment, although abuse also obviously pertains to the dignity of the person and not just the Sixth Commandment. But it is not sort of universally a crime for clerics to violate the obligation of continence, which is to say the obligation of not having sex. It is not in the Code of Canon Law a, a canonical crime if a, if a cleric in principle has consensual sex with an adult who is consenting, who is not having been manipulated or a vulnerable person or something like that. And I found myself wondering, because clerics have the obligation of continence, why that is. And what, I'm, what I've generally been told is, uh, well, there's a difference between private sins and public sins. And um, uh, public sins, of course, should be punished, but private sins should needn't be punished. And I find myself, that seems a bit like question begging to me. Like, um, why isn't this a crime? Well, because it's not a crime, it's a sin. Okay. Well, why isn't it a crime? Well, because it's a sin, not a crime. It, it seems to me a bit like question begging. There seems to me to be an inconsistency. Well, all crimes are sins. All That's... crimes are sins. Um, yes. All crimes are sins. Not all sins are crimes. All crimes are sins. Not all sins are crimes. I can think of certain kind of criminal activity 
in the civil law, which may not be sinful. Oh, well, no, I'm not talking about the civil law. I'm talking about God's law. I'm talking about the code of canon law. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say divine positive law and ecclesiastical law. Let's say that. Merely civil, merely civil positive merely civil law is, law, is, is positive quite laws. frankly against the laws of God and, times and nature on many occasions. Yeah, occasions. No, I'm not yes, talking okay. about that. I'm talking okay. about legitimate law. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I find myself wondering that. And the, the, the answer I have always gotten is, seems to me to be a bit upon reflection, a bit of question begging. They're private sins. All sins are no, no sins are wholly private. Even sins which are occult, which is to say, no one knows. About well, that, them, but okay, so that's an important distinction private. to make. I, I don't believe in the concept of private sin versus public sin. There are occult sins versus notorious sins. Mm-hmm. It is not, and I'm not a moral theologian, but I still feel reasonably confident saying this, and I, I'd be prepared to defend it as an assertion. Every sin is a, is a sin against God and your neighbor. Mm-hmm. That even if you sin in a, in a way that is so occult that nobody is immediately aware of it apart from yourself, that that has a ripple effect. It it, it, it stains your soul and, and marks your character and it impacts your relationship with God and your and your neighbor, that you behave differently when you are in a state of sin. You behave differently when you have sinned by by the act of concealing the sin. That is that is, you know, that sort of dissembling also affects your relationship. It ripples out. So no, I the I, I find the language of public versus private sin to be very problematic. It's yeah. it's a cult versus notorious, which are yeah. completely different concepts. That's right. And, right. and for clerics, I'm, I mean, I'm sensitive to the idea of, you know, you can't just say every sin committed by a cleric should be a crime in the law of the church. That's that's true. I would agree with that. Um, but the thing is, you know, you mentioned the obligation to continence. That's a legal obligation. Yes. And when you violate a legal obligation, I have no problem delineating that as a as a as a delict as it's a violation of the law. It's. It should be legally punishable. If you violate a legal obligation, you should be able to be punished legally. I think that's coherent. Um, I, I think that just makes good sense. And also, I mean, the, okay, I, I'm not – I want to be very clear. I, I want to talk about a gigantic distinction in gravity for a second to make a comparison. And it is a gigantic distinction. Some might argue so gigantic it doesn't merit comparison. But nevertheless, as a legal premise, I think it is important. Okay. Pope. Benedict the Sixteenth described in his legal reforms relating to the sexual abuse of minors by clerics the crime of sexual abuse of a minor as a spiritual crime, as a crime against the faith, because for this the most heinous act of which one can conceive to be committed by a minister of the church was a crime not just against the individual, not just against their family, not just against the community, but against the faith itself. Such was a counter witness did it provide. Mm-hmm. That's that's the ultimate beyond 100% extreme of the crime. In the same way, though, is not a, a, a sinful lapse in this way by a cleric bound by continence also a sin against the faith. To a, I, I concede much, 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 much less degree. But is it not just a question of degree? Is it not essentially the same premise, which is that some sins, which are sins for everyone, when committed by clerics, constitute a witness against the faith? Yes, of course. This is okay. a perfect example of that. Yeah. Okay. So in that sense, I'm, again, I'm, I'm, I am fairly comfortable with what we used to have in canon law, which was a fairly exhaustive, taxative list of potential illicit sexual behaviors which were constituted as delicts. And not, you know, this isn't to say that every single one was a hanging offense. 
Right. On the contrary. Yeah, on the contrary, know, right? It, there's actually, a gradation the reduction of, of crimes to only the most grave crimes is you know undermines the whole system of criminal prosecution. Well, but no, it wasn't meant to. When the when the code was revised, right, right, we've talked and they that. stripped it down to only the most serious crimes and the most universal of crimes independent of all time and place and circumstance will be included in book 6 of the Code of Canon Law. The reason they did that was because every diocese was supposed to have its own criminal law promulgated proper to time, place, and circumstance, and nobody ever did that. Yeah, that's Because right. we went through this cultural antinomianism that resulted in large part in the failure to use even the basics of canonical penal process that remained in the law, and we got the sexual abuse crisis and scandal and cover-up for decades in this country, uh, inter alia. Mm-hmm. So, so all of that having been said, yeah, I don't know that I buy this, um, this sort of and I mean, this was effectively what Father Sosa was arguing for in Rupnik's case was that, you know, well, if it's private, it's private. You know, right. You don't air a guy's sins in public, even when they are not just since they are crimes, they are considered in the mind and law of the church to be the most serious crime possible, which is a blasphemy against the sacrament. Yes. And to say, well, you know, guy's got a right to a good name. No, you don't. You, no, don't, you don't have a, you do have a right to you have a right not to have unjust injury to your reputation. If you are excommunicated for blaspheming against the sacrament, you don't have a right to a good name. On the contrary, the rest of us have a right to strip you of your good name so that we know who we're dealing with. Right, precisely. That's right. Um, okay, so I just want to move. I just want to come back because you, you have raised some good points, but I, I've I've really found myself asking just why did have didn't the legislators of the universal law make this decision? And I think part of it you say is uh, well because there might be a sort of deference to the possibility of a particular law there, and I think that's true. Another possibility might be I think that the sense that um, regulation, another sort of rational possibility, might be the sense that regulation of um, relatively unknown um, sexual acts involving clerics, which is to say potentially consensual acts of uh, involving clerics, uh, that regulation of that might be especially sort of difficult and that laws prohibiting that, you know, effectively penal laws corresponding to the legal obligation of continence might be unenforceable and that keeping on the books a great many unenforceable laws undermines the sort of integrity of the rule of law altogether. And I do think that is a canonical principle. There is something to that, whether it's the whole of the thing or not. I do think there's something to the idea that making a lot of laws that you can't enforce does sort of erode the rule of law. We have talked about that before, and you've agreed with me about that. It's not the only principle. There are other principles to ask and other sort of issues to address. But I do think that that's probably... Probably, to the extent that this has been discussed, and I think probably in the legal history of the church, there's a great deal of back and forth about what should be the laws corresponding to the canonical obligation of continence. Probably that thing is an issue itself, that the investigations are difficult, that um, that, that the enforceability is difficult, and that having laws to that effect um, is not a good idea. Now, that value, we shouldn't have a lot of unenforceable laws, it, it, it is a value in the law, but not the only value. So, for example... There are other kind of delicts which are, which pertain to things which are relatively unenforceable or uninvestigable. Toll, uninvestigable. It is extremely difficult to instruct in, or investigate an allegation of a the violation of the seal or even the absolution of an accomplice in the sin against the Sixth Amendment because it involve, because the seal sits as this big sort of block in the middle of the investigation. And I have worked on investigations of violation of the seal cases, and they're as very very difficult. They're very very difficult to conduct. Um, we have the law anyway, even though it's very, very difficult to pursue this, and even though, therefore, that might mean that many violations of the seal do not sort of get a sort of penal response, 
uh, a declared penal but response. But some do. It's not totally unenforceable. But some do, right? And so it's not totally unenforceable. So um, so that's not the only value, but I'm thinking that maybe that's a value. Anyway, I think that there's probably more to this. I just think it raises a question, which is when these distinctions are made, we see now that much of the dis- much of the distinction making that happens when there is the scandal involving a cleric and sexual contact, that the church's this legal system is often making a set of distinctions that don't resonate with, um, you know, practicing Catholics. And, um, and therefore, I do think there are questions to be raised about sort of whether that in itself undermines the rule of law or the witness of the gospel or the integrity of the gospel and whether or not that might be a prudent consideration to change some of these things, either in particular law or universal law. But I, I'd like us to do more reporting on that because I just – it is one of the questions that arises here. Sure. But I mean the other thing to bear in mind is we have essentially criminalized all possible – sexual activity by clerics in the church again. Anyway, we've just done it piecemeal through the interpretation of other legislation. I mean, Vos Estes Lux Mundi, for example, created this vastly expanded and um, widely interpretable provision regarding vulnerable persons, which can be and has been applied to mean certainly anyone with a pastoral relationship with a cleric and arguably anyone who knows that it's a cleric because mm-hmm. if you are a Catholic, yeah. you, you will always have a, a spiritually asymmetrical relationship with a priest. You just will. Um, so we've basically done it anyway, apart from arguably the, the very narrow and I would say, you know, statistically irrelevant because hard cases make for bad law. Um, you know, for the purposes of crafting good legislation, negligible uh, instances where a, a cleric is committing sexual sins in a truly anonymous scenario. Yeah. Which raises other important questions about due prudence and fitness for ministry and, and, and other things, but at least in terms of, um, you know, the, the sort of aspect of which every, every sexual violation by a cleric who is known to be a cleric in some way is a witness against the faith. And it's not, it, it can never be a truly equal relationship. Mm-hmm. And if it's not a truly equal relationship, then it raises all sorts of questions about the validity of consent. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot more to dig into on this. And we haven't even talked about the biggest story that we reported this week, the um, a, a very significant story, which is to say the appropriation of um, funds designated for charity at the Pontifical Council for the Family by Archbishop Vincenzo Paglia for the renovation of his apartment, uh, which we reported this week. It was a major investigative story that we had worked on for quite some time, confirmed by numerous very high-level uh, Roman curial sources, and and um, and how, after that money was sort of appropriated, Paglia um, claimed to have paid it back, but the claim of high-level Vatican sources that that means he basically moved other um, money belonging to the to the Pontifical Council for the Family in place of the money that he had moved to renovate his apartment and other buildings and and and, and appropriate for other reasons. A very significant financial scandal. Um, I don't just want to be the scandal podcast, of course, but a very significant financial issue for the church, which needs to be addressed. And we care a lot about good governance, which is why we talk so much about bad <laughs> governance, because we care a great deal about good governance. Next week, Ed, uh, I want to talk. Uh, what do we have? What do we have next week? What is happening for us next week? I don't know yet. Is next week our Christmas extravaganza? In in a in theory, next week will be our our hopefully annual Christmas quiz extravaganza. Yes. I I have some work to do. It's okay, get to it's it. It's not easy coming up with that quiz. That's not a back of an envelope. No, you're, what you're doing basically thing. is hosting an episode of the podcast, and hosting an episode of the podcast is not easy. 
Right, but also there are there are rounds. No, no, no. I know. Believe me. I mean, I believe me. Every week I have to do that that kind of hard work that you have to do for the Christmas episode. I mean, I know week in week out. So believe me, I, I I understand. We'll see. I, I hope that it will not just be next week, next week should be our Christmas extravaganza and it'll be a lot of fun. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Conan. Our executive producer is Kate Oliver. And I just want to take a moment to say how good an executive producer Kate Oliver is. Kate is the best. And if you think Kate's work is good and important and the work that she does on this podcast, on Sunday School, on the Pillar in Depth, and on other projects is good and important, what you should do, and we really would love it if you did it, is become a subscriber to The Pillar. Go to PillarCatholic.com and hit the subscribe button because subscribers to The Pillar make the podcast happen, make Kate happen. And uh, that's important. So, anywho, uh, next week we will be back with a dot-tastic, disc-spectacular of a Christmas extravaganza. We'll see you then.